Once again, it is good to be with you all. Uh, it's a joy to be here and to dream about what God can do. I was asking Carol and Lynn how we were doing in comparison to last year with our attendance, and they said we were up a little. And I'm not at a big attendance, I'm not a big numbers person per se, other than to recognize that everyone has a soul. And the more numbers that we have here, it represents the more people that are going to be brought into a right relationship with God. And so you've heard me before, if you listened here at Family Vacation in the past, dream about us blowing out the walls to our right and filling this thing up. And I know that that's a prayer that's not only mine, but it's one for every one that's on the board of Family Vacation. It's one that every campus minister has. And it's not one because we're trying to bring glory to ourselves. It's just, again, that we know that the more people are here, the more people that God has used us to reach and the more people that God will use to reach that next year. Back home where I am, I, I, uh, the senior minister, we're a church that's about 14 years old now. That's hard to believe. But about 13, a little over 13 years old, going on 14. And we started with just a handful of people, 35 people. And, and we started with a vision of being a church that would reach people, develop those people, raise them up to where they would then be sent out for Jesus Christ. And so over that 12 or 13 years, we've grown in attendance to around, we run a little over 500 now. But two times during the, over the last four years, a little over four years, we've sent out teams of 35 people, both times approximately, who've sent into two new churches. Right now, some of them are more of a campus, but they'll become fully independent, functioning churches. And our goal is to fill the St. Louis area, the media, any place in, that, in, in the town where there's a university or a college, we're going to put a church that's there. And when we leave the St. Louis area, then we'll go into the Midwest. And it's a dream of what God can do, and it's a dream that's really small, I think, to the one that God would have. And as you see, I hope that you have that dream for your campus ministry, that you have a dream of making a difference in an individual life so clearly that it ends up making impact for Jesus in your community. And then ultimately, as we all do that, then we make a worldwide impact for God that will be felt throughout all eternity. But here's what I want you to know. When you have that dream and when you have that purpose and when you have that vision and when you pray for that, you need to know that there are forces other than God that are listening to your prayers and are aware of your plans. And as God is longing to bless you and bring you success, Satan is determined to curse you and bring failure into your life. And the more that you dream with your heart and obey with your life, the commands of Jesus, the more obstacles you will face because you become a real threat to the kingdom of darkness in this world. There's a passage of scripture that I've got on a, a presentation here that you guys can, can uh, read from either your, your Bibles or your notebooks or your phones, whatever you're going to read. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the apostle Paul said this as he speaks to his young protege, Timothy. Paul is the one that is the, the senior evangelist, the master discipler, and Timothy is the student that he is grooming into being a, 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 someone who's going to make a difference in the world that he lives. And he says to Timothy, you, however, know all about my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, perseverance, or in other translations say perseverance, NIV is patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecution I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. 
And then he says this, Timothy, you need to know that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I'm standing before you tonight to give you, I guess, bad news in one sense, is that there is no place in the United States, cultural-wise, that you are more open to the persecution if you're trying to live a godly life than on your own campus and where you are represented for Jesus. We know what that's like at the crossings. We know how it is to have things said about us that aren't true. Several years ago, the local news, or the, the student newspaper did a series of articles on our campus ministries that the president of the school acknowledged were 99% unverified and inaccurate, but they printed dozens of articles over a very short period of time, a few months. It resulted in the campus life and leader, employee of the college, losing his job and his assistants and several others, all who were members of our congregation and were functioning in our campus ministry. And it resulted in some of our girls, as they were going in places, having, having people driving by and throwing trash at them, uh, people holding the door on handicapped students from our campus ministry when they saw the shirts that they were wearing. It was, an, it was an attack that was vicious, but it's not an attack that's unique to us. If you get online and begin to check out the, the battles that are going on within our culture about Christianity, you will find out that the fiercest battleground is not just our universities, but it literally is the universities where they're being segregated and they're being separated and they're being minimized and they're being made fun of and put in categories of being ungodly and uncaring. And here's the thing, as all of that happens, Jesus isn't surprised. God isn't surprised. Because God, through the Holy Spirit, said that, listen, you guys need to know that if you're going to try to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, it's going to happen. And so what we've got to, 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 to do in this evening, what we're going to look at is just some things about persecution that are just sort of realities that, that, that the Scripture reveal. And then maybe a little bit how we can respond to persecution in a way that allows God to do what he wants to do regardless of what's going on around us. We're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy, but he, Timothy wasn't his only person that he was mentoring, that he was discipling. He was a church planter. He was an apostle of Jesus. And he wrote and he planted a church in a city called Thessalonica. And if you read all of the Apostle Paul's letters and writings, this would be, if you were to ask, who is the Apostle Paul's favorite church? Which one would he go, man, this is the one I want you all to be like. This is probably the one I, I think that he would pick out. And so we're going to look at, uh, at some passages out of 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 2. We're going to walk through some things he said to them about persecution that he was going through. And then we're going to talk about how you and I can do what he did and what he encouraged them to do in order to have the same kind of incredible outcome that they had. So if we're going to have to deal with persecution, first of all, if you and I are going to deal with persecution well, it begins that I must realize that outside persecution cannot stop me. It can't stop us. You see, it doesn't matter what's going on from the outside as Satan attacks the church. It doesn't matter what's going on outside of your campus ministry. Over and over again, it has been proven that persecution can hurt. 
And persecution can make us re-strategize. But if you read in Scripture, you don't find that persecution was able to stop what God was doing. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, and he says this. He begins in chapter 2, verse 1 with these words. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Now, what he's saying there, he's saying, listen, you need to know that our visit to you was not a failure. Our visit to you to produce the kinds of things that God wanted, and he's going to tell them later on that this incredible church is a result of what they were doing and what he was doing in that town and what he was doing before. But if you notice, he says, you know, brothers and sisters, our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. He says, listen, what you need to know that opposition was a part of where we were before. But notice he says, when we came to you, the opposition, while it may have changed, he doesn't say it disappears because he said, when we spoke to you all, we had to do it in the face of strong opposition. And I want you all to know that more and more, you're not going to be able to somehow skirt the opposition that's there. I talk with people sometimes, and it's amazing how people who don't reach out to people and churches who don't reach out to people don't understand the hostility that Satan has and the world has against Christians who are trying to reach others. If you're not reaching anybody, you're not offending anybody, and quite frankly, Satan's probably not very bothered with you. And so I'll have people say sometimes, well, you know, I think you just need to do, and their basic message is, if you were just a little bit nicer, and if you were just a little bit more godly, and if you just couch your words in a little bit more, maybe wiser kinds of phrases, then maybe you wouldn't have the hard times that you're having. And so I say to them, so you're saying, if I were as wise as Jesus and as loving as Jesus, as kind as Jesus and serving as Jesus, they wouldn't be mean to me like they were to Jesus. Does that make any sense to you? You know what I mean? It's just like, come on, what, let's, they killed the son of God because they were opposed to his message that men hated light and they love darkness. And so one of the things that we have to recognize is that whatever we're going to do, if we do it well, it will be in the face of opposition. You need to be prepared for that. I need to be prepared for that. I like everybody to like me. Growing up, it almost destroyed my life. And what I want you to know, you can want everybody to like you, but if you compromise to have everybody like you, you'll destroy your ministry. But there's good news. You go back to your ministries, whether it's at Lindenwood, whether it's at Umpsel, whether it's at uh, wherever it might be, Florida or, or, or Birmingham or wherever you might be from. And you go represent Jesus there and there's a promise that even in the face of strong opposition, that God does not, allow, does not allow the attacks of Satan to prevent you from having good things happen in your ministry. Persecution cannot stop you. Now with that in mind, the second thing, as you look at what Paul says to the Thessalonians, the second thing when it comes to understanding persecution that we've got to get, that I must recognize persecution is designed to stop me. 
You see, Satan doesn't want you to know what God knows, that it doesn't matter how strong the fires of hell and the forces of evil fight against you, that it can't stop you. He wants you to live in a lie in thinking that it can. Because if he makes you think that it can, it becomes a possibility, and then your faith withers and your ministry fails. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Towards the end of the chapter, Paul wrote and said, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Now, just for a second, backing up to that, you can't stop it. He had just came from churches that were faithfully handling persecution, and he was the model of that. He, ended, he had in the face of strong opposition that had to share with them, and then when he did it, that church buys in. And just a word for our leaders that are out there, for those of you who are in the fronts of the army, it is super important that you set the pace for how you deal with hardship. If you mope and if you whine and if you get discouraged and if you give up, so will everybody else in your ministry. But if you will respond as Paul with, you'll have a church and a, peop a group of people that will follow you. He said, you suffered from your own people, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. Now, he's not talking about everyone in the world. He's hostile to everyone. These people are hostile to everyone who is truly godly and sharing the message of Christ. In verse 16, he says, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. He says, listen, they're hostile to everyone, and here's, here's what their effort is all about. It is designed to shut us up. It is designed to stop us. It's designed to prevent us. And here's the thing. Sometimes the opposition can be so hard that you think that it's hopeless, and you give up when in reality it was never hopeless at all. You were just conned into believing that it was. And I want you all to know, I, I sympathize. And man, it was my son who lost his job. It was my son who had people calling in on voicemail and leaving him nasty messages. It was Carrie who endured a fate that nobody should have to endure for being what God wanted them to be. And it bothered me. But the fact that it bothered and hurt me didn't change the reality that it would not be the persecution that would stop us if we were stopped. Because persecution will never stop the church. It wouldn't be the persecution that would stop us, it would be our way of thinking and dealing with that persecution and buying into the lie. So if persecution can't stop us, and Paul says the very purpose of persecution is to stop you, to shut you up to where you're not sharing and you're not reaching out, all of a sudden, it becomes essential that each of us must respond to persecution in the right way. If it can't stop you, but if it's designed to stop you, then man, and Satan knows that it, it will stop you if you don't respond properly. It's super important that we decide that we're going to look to the scripture, we're going to look to what the word reveals, to how do you and I respond to persecution. Because I believe that on the campus, you are living at one of the darkest times, the most difficult time to reach people in all of history. But I believe the darker the world, the brighter the light. And there is an opportunity in the middle of this darkness if we do not hide our lights under the proverbial bushel.
So let me talk to you just out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 again and give you five ways of responding to persecution in the right way. These five things, if you go, well, what's it, what's it mean? What's it look like when you respond to persecution in the right way? Well, these five things encapsulate the right way to respond to persecution and hardship. Responding the right way, first of all, means that I share my burden. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we've already read this, but he says to this church, you know in verse 1. And you know are two words, by the way, that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we just finished a few months ago taking our leaders, our small group leaders through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 and a little bit more into 3 on how to, how to disciple and to raise up their leaders. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you know is a relational term. You see, whenever the Bible in Scripture talks about you know someone, in, in, in the Scriptures, in, in the Old Testament, the Bible says that Adam knew Eve. I had a friend who, one of my teachers, that whenever he was in Freed Hardeman, we got a Freed guy back there somewhere, they wave at me. Uh, one, of his, one of the guys was doing a, a, a lesson about we need to get to know each other. And he said, we get to know each other like Adam got to know Eve and like Abraham got to know Sarah. And he went through a list of couples. Well, the only problem with in those contexts, it all had to do with that they had sexual relations. And he's up going, hey, we need to, which would really cause a start freed heart of him if you tried that, or probably any other, you know, Christian college. But in laughing about that, we miss this idea that this you know has to do with an intimacy of God. When the prophets say that my people are destroyed because they lack knowledge, they don't know who I am, it's not just talking about an intellectual reality because the people he's talking about knew Jehovah was, but he didn't, they didn't know him in an intimate way. And so when Paul writes to this church and says, for you know, he's speaking in a relational term and say, he's not just affirming that they did well on a trivial contest, but he's saying, guys, you, you're in relationship with me. And he says, you know about some of these things. You know we'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. Now, how did he know those things? How did they know this before the writing of these letters that we have in, in, our, in our New Testament? It seems apparent to me that the Apostle Paul, one of the most strong and driven personalities in all of Scripture, shared the struggles that he had with the people that he was working with. And at some point, we've got the idea, and this is true for those of you who are leaders, when I say you shouldn't whine, you shouldn't get discouraged, the solution to not whining and getting discouraged is sharing your burdens and praying about those things and having another set of eyes and another heart with you to remind you that persecution can't stop you. But I can't tell you how, how difficult it is. If you don't have one to someone to share that burden with, I pity you. You are pitiful. And that's not just my opinion because Solomon years before said that two are better than one. If one falls down, the other can help him up. If one falls and no one's there. One translation says, but I pity the man who falls. And so as Paul is sharing what's going on, I believe he is not only letting them know that, listen, persecution is a part of the Christian life. If you try to do something good, you're going to get in trouble. It's just the way that it is. 
I don't care what it is. If you stand up for what's right. Years ago, we did a Ban the Klan rally at SIUE. They were, the, the Ku Klux Klan came in and was handing out literature. And man, we found out about it. And, and I called our campus men at the time and said, we've got to do something about this. He was black. And, and so I said, why don't you be the black side of that? I'll be the white side of this. And we'll go over and we'll do this rally. We'll speak together. And we went together and it was an incredible time. And by the way, all, not all, but every black Greek organization had somebody representative there. None of the white Greeks were there. None of the organizations at all. And so he and I get up and a lot of the staff is there and we made some incredible inroads into the, into the staff that was there. And we made some inroads to say that we're caring. It was a great thing. And we got praised and I also got death threats on our church answering machine. A few months later, Louis Farrakhan came in and was doing his American Muslim thing. And our campus minister called and said, this is a bunch of garbage. We need to make, let's do something about this and let's talk about this whole thing again. And he was labeled an Uncle Tom. And all he was trying to do was to do the right thing. And all I was trying to do is say, this is not right. And I was standing up against the people that they would say, these are yours. And he was standing up against the element that was wrong. And, and something so clear there still is persecution and threats and mistreatments. And I want you to know, you can't avoid that, but you can't handle that alone. And the idea that you're just tough and this intellectual reality as well, you know, and all of a sudden as preachers and as campus ministers, we get all spiritual as if somehow we supersede the laws of scripture. Well, yeah, you know, we knew this was gonna happen. I expect it, so it's not really a problem. It is a problem if that's your attitude and you're not sharing that burden with someone. Let me encourage you when you encounter persecution, that you make sure you do it together. Whenever the first story broke about the, the, the RCM Campus Ministries, under that time it was a different name. Whenever that ministry, when it broke, it was amazing because, again, my son was the Director of Student Life and Leadership at that, at that university. And so he's got all the kids that are coming to his office, but they see the story because for the first time since he had been there, they handed out the newspaper to people. They had never done that before. It was always left in some little kiosk kind of setting or at the end, and they hand it out. And our students, when they found it, went back to their dorms. And they did it without anybody leading, but they all went back to their dorms and they put on their campus ministry shirts, making them targets, but making them stronger and united. And they all showed up in his office, in Kerry's office. There was 25 or 30 of them. And they all walk in and they've got their shirts on. Can I let you know, during that time, we did not leave, lose a single student over six months of persecution, that we had been advised that we ought to sue the university. We'd had some of your legal defense funds that don't take cases from, from, from private universities that called us and said, we'll take that one. We had stories done from legal, some legal people, Christian people in Texas that were highlighted in that. And it was an intense persecution, but nobody was lost. And I think one of the reasons nobody was lost is that everybody shared the burden and they prayed about it and they admitted how much it hurt and they got angry together and they protected each other and they came together against the forces of darkness. And that is going to happen to you, the persecution will, but it is up to you whether it divides you or whether it unites you. You gotta make sure that you share the burden. You're not above that. Leadership set the pace. There's a passage of scripture 
that I love out of Matthew 26. The Bible says, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch for me. You guys recognize who the he is there? The he is a pretty strong leader. It's Jesus. He's a pretty spiritual kind of guy. He's like God. And yet during this time of persecution, when it becomes most intense, he doesn't isolate himself, but he gets to two or three guys that he's closest with and he just wants them to be there. Why? Well, there's two potential reasons. I think both of them are right. One of them, I think he wanted to set an example for all of the arrogant church leaders who thought that the way you handle problems and hardship is by just sticking out your chin and toughing it out. Unless you are somehow stronger than Jesus, that is not the way that you respond to hardship. So I think he set an example for us to know that we need to be supporting, the, as leaders, we need the support, and as followers, we need to support our leaders. Because when the church is persecuted, your leaders are the most targeted. I promise you. The second reason I think Jesus did it is because he knew as a human being, without it, he was susceptible to sin. Because remember, he goes in that garden and is going, God, if there's any way you can take this from me, get me out of this. Escaping his calling is in the mind of Jesus somehow. And the only thing that I can see, it's the only time that it happens, it happens under intense persecution, and he takes people with him and asks them to wait, and he asks them to pray. Paul tells the church, and he doesn't just do it once or twice, he reminds, and he does it regularly in his Guys, you know what I'm going through. You know the hardships I've suffered. You know how these chains have affected me. I'm in prison. And we think, why, why is that just written? Is it just some space filler in Scripture? And I would challenge you to maybe realize that what the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal is that persecution and hardship demands that that load be shared. So responding in the right way to persecution means that I share the burden. The second thing that it means is that I determine that I'm going to trust in God. He says, you guys know how, our, how the persecution, how the hardships that we went through. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the second half of verse uh, 2, he says, Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. That the opposition was not able to prevent him because he was depending more on God than he was on the opposition. And I am convinced that there are some times that God allows, he opens the door to persecution because we are very comfortable and smug in our relationship with God and we're doing nothing, we're just content to be a nice little religious clique where everybody likes everybody and has a good time and God goes, that's not what you're about. You're about making a difference. Let me disrupt, disrupt your comfort. The Apostle Paul would later write to the Corinthian church, and he's again sharing how he felt and how intense the feelings of discouragement were. Why does he do it? I believe because he is setting a pattern. You grew up, if you grew up in a church of Christ, with a very much of a pattern theology. I just think sometimes we ignore some more obvious patterns. He is setting a pattern of how people should respond to persecution and hardship. And that's by the sharing of it, but not by the covering up. 
But he also lets us know that while persecution cannot stop us, God has a purpose even in the persecution. Because he says, indeed, we felt we've received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why does he say to rely on God who raises the dead? Because he's saying that we felt like there was a death sentence that was upon us. And when the death sentence comes on and when it's that kind of persecution, it's all over. It is all over because a dead person doesn't raise himself up. Jesus talks about his father raising him up. Jesus resurrected people from the dead, Lazarus. In the Old Testament, you have a few examples of someone raised, but nobody raises themselves up. And so as we share this burden, part of that sharing needs to be this realization that even if this were a corpse, even if it were hopeless by all human standards, it would not be hopeless if you understand the God that you serve. Because you see, if you look at the apostles and Paul wasn't there present when Jesus was crucified, it was all over. Why? Because the persecution had become so strong that Jesus was dead until the surprise party on Sunday morning. Ah, just kidding. I'm back. Right? When hopelessness is absolutely demolished with hope. And Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 1 that the same power that was exerted in the resurrection in Christ from the dead is the power that is at work in you. So share that burden and share this reality that no matter how bad it seems, even it seems like this is going to kill our ministry, it is not going to do it. And if it does, Jesus Christ and his Father are experts at raising the dead. And the reason that persecution may happen is to finally get you out of your comfort zone and stop relying on what you can do. You know, it's really time that we have some supernatural things happen with our ministry. To where things happen and we're seeing things life change and people being reached in a way that we can go, man, there's no way we could do this. This explosion of transformation and growth only comes from God, but it never comes from God until we rely on God. For some of you sisters, you need to take that next step up to where you boldly trust God to go out and do what's right and decide that regardless of what's going on, that you're going to be this amazing, courageous woman of God. And you men need to applaud that and jump out in front and lead in a way that makes them go, now that's a man. You go, I'm kind of timid. Well, then trust God. So if I'm going to respond, persecution can't stop us. It's designed to, and it will, if I don't respond right. What's it mean to do to respond right? It means that I share the burden. I trust in God. Number three, I check my motives. Persecution is a purifier of motives. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes and says, So you can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. Now, I would like to think that motive wasn't a problem for any of you. But if you are in ministry, if you're a leader in ministry, I have yet to meet the person that is in ministry leadership that does not struggle with motive purity. You see, whenever I was growing up, I did all kinds of stupid things. I mean, if you would look at my life when I was any, from the time I was about probably eight years old to the time I was 15 or 16 years old, I was constantly in trouble. I was a kid that went to church all the time because I had to. 
know what I mean? I was like drug up in church. My parents gave me a choice, go to church. You say, well, I wish my parents had gave me a church. Mine was go to church or die. And so I decided, you know, right, you know, and sometimes I was like, okay, dying, would it really be that bad? It seems like that's what this was. But anyway, I went. But I can't tell you the number of times my mom would turn around and see the teacher marching me out by the ear or the, or the soldiers and setting me down, sometimes rather firmly next to them. And you get that look of, you are not going to live through the day. Unless, you know, right? And so at church, I was in trouble. At school, I was constantly in the principal's office, constantly, over and over and over again. And I just do stupid things. You know what I mean? In school, I was always the principal. So I get, I, I'm, I'm on detention. I had to go in for, you know, in recess. So I'd turn all the desks around in our classroom, climbed out the window and did recess on the other side of the building, come back in. My desk is the only one that's sitting straight ahead. The teachers and everybody else has turned around completely. They pretty well had a good idea who did that. You know what I'm saying? You know, if you're going to get by with that, you turn your desk around and go, I don't know who did this. They did mine too. Not a, not a wise thing to do. Then whenever I go to high school, I'm in the behavioral disorder classroom. They called it the crisis classroom, had a little church building. You know what I mean? That they sent us to, that they bought. It's like double hell. I got to go to school and now to go to church during the school time. And I was there for a number of days for every semester that I was in high school. I didn't make it through a semester without getting sent there. I did dangerous, dumb things. I mean, I, I mean things that you just go out, man, that guy hadn't got a brain. Well, I had a brain. It just wasn't functioning correctly. Which, by the way, is a common problem for teenagers and college students. Because everything I did, I did to impress people. I grew up with a fundamental feeling that something was flawed with me, that something was wrong. That I didn't fit in, that I was dumb, that I was ugly, and that I was scarred from something. I wasn't like all the other kids. And I was determined to fit in. And sports was that outlet initially until my irresponsibility took that out of my realm. And then all of a sudden, every dumb thing I could do. So whenever I got into my min in ministry, Rita will tell you that I struggled greatly with realizing that what I was for much of my life, I've done dumb things in order to impress people. And now that I'm in ministry, I'll do right things to impress people. To do the right thing for the wrong motive doesn't result in what's right. He says, so you can see that we're not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery, for we speak as messengers of God approved to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of the heart. There's two practical reasons that you have to check your motives. Number one, reason one, God is not in the business of blessing bad motives. You want to have a great campus ministry, you can't have motives that are wrong and impure. And I'm convinced that Satan will allow you to be successful for a while simply to take you out and destroy more people with you. I asked Joe Beam, a friend of mine, some of you know of Joe, who's got a syndicated radio say It was a super popular preacher for a while, then fell into discouragement, fell into pornography and all kinds of pornography and, and relationship problems, went through a divorce. And it went through whenever he, he was going through all of this at the time, he was the most successful he had ever been in ministry. He was the most well-known. He had been voted the most influential person in Evansville, Indiana, above the politicians, above the mayor. And I, Joe, I said, Joe, why do you think, how did that happen? How did you get so high and then crash? He said, I think Satan got me to that moment to where when my crash went down, it would take the most people with me. I think he guided my success. 
So if you're here and your motive in your campus ministry is to put, shine the light on you, and understand, I believe that for me, that has always been a struggle. My wife really gets sick of me going, why, why don't I want to make sure my motives are right. But you see, God's not in the business of blessing motives that are wrong. In James chapter 4, some familiar verses, the Bible says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God. And even when you ask for it, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You need to check your motive because God isn't in the business of blessing wrong motives. And that might explain for us why our campus ministries, why this room isn't more full than it should be. Second reason bad motives, you need to check your motives, is because bad motives will not sustain you during hard times. In Galatians 1.10, the apostle Paul wrote and said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I'm still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I think there's two things he's saying. If you're pleasing people, you're not a servant of Christ. I think what he's saying also is, if I were in this business to please people, I'd get out because it's too hard. You realize that there is no field of profession in the, in the world that has more dropouts than church staff in ministry. Very few people who start off in ministry get out of ministry. And a lot of those guys will say, well, you know, it's because the church, I, I talked with a guy this week, had lunch with him, and he said, I'm not speaking anywhere. And the reason I'm not speaking anywhere is the conservatives. I'm never conservative enough for the conservatives. I'm never liberal enough for the liberals. So I got shot at from both sides from my brothers, and it just got old. And that's a reality. And some people, just because people are so mean. But I tell you, one of the reasons that people get out of ministry, often they get out, is because they didn't get in it for the right reasons. They got in it for the praise of people and the applause to say, oh, you're wonderful, you're awesome, you do a great job, let me bow down. And that motive is the equivalent of a snicker bar. Anybody here like snicker bars? I love snicker bars, don't you, man? You eat that snicker bar and you feel energized for five minutes, then it's nap time, right? When you're old, you go like, man, burst of energy, nap, right? Give me a snicker, I'm excited. Right, it's you know about like that. It's just over. You see that that sugar will burn an explosion. But if you are expecting a Snicker bar to sustain you in long-term energy and health, you got problems. And the praise of men and the applause of men is the spiritual equivalent of a Snicker bar. It will give you a burst of energy, and you you will flame out quickly. Over and over and over again, hardship in Scripture is often designed to reveal a motive that's wrong. So in this hardship, if the motive is revealed and you don't adjust it, then you will be pushed out and you will quit. And you may go, well, I just, I guess I just wasn't the right person for the job. No, you didn't become the right person for the job. I guess I'm just not cut out for ministry. No, you didn't let Jesus shape you into the person that you needed to be for ministry because your impure motive prevented it from happening. So it's super important that you check your motives. So, so far we've said this, responding right to persecution means that I share my burden, I trust in God, I check my motive. Number four, a hard one, I continue to care. It's a hard thing to care for people who hurt you. In our core meeting the other night, last year was not a particularly good year for the crossings. 
We planted a church and that stole some of our focus from reaching and baptizing people. It's, it's the first year in a while that we've not had you know, 60 or more baptisms. And I think we were somewhere between the four high 40s or low 50s. I'm not sure exactly where we were. But I know part of that struggle comes from our being distracted with a church plant. I was building a house, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever done, that distracted me. But the truth is, in ministry, you have this accumulation of hurt, and you have this accumulation, uh, and you begin to protect yourself. And so our core meeting the other day, I was like, you know, I used to have this enthusiasm for people but I don't anymore. It, I, I struggle. I, I bought my brother-in-law a shirt. It said, I used to love people. And then in finer print, it said, but people ruined that for me. You ever feel like that? He owns a business and he literally goes, I hate people. Oh, you don't really hate people. Yes, I do. And I don't hate people, but I really used to love people, but people kind of ruined that for me. Now understand the Bible says it's not people. It's a force of evil behind it. And it is so important that we choose to care. Notice what Paul says again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 2, then we skip down to 7 and 8. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. What's the gospel? It's the good news. Did you know that when the good news is served cold, it's not nearly as appetizing? I'm a saint, you're a sinner, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell, you probably deserve it, I might even smile. Right? Repent. If not, you'll be lost. I'll still be happy, you'll be lost. I don't know who it was that said, I have never wished that someone would die, but I have smiled when I read their obituary. And I can kind of feel that about people, can't you? Kind of like, you know, I'm not saying I wish, but I don't, I don't like them anymore. And in a culture that's hostile, that's mistreated, mistreated my son and mistreated my daughter and mistreated the men and women, some of the beautiful sisters that we have in a way that is disgusting, it is very easy for me who has always been known as a lover of people and always was a people person to sort of go, man, I just don't like people anymore. And I begin to forget that the struggle is not with people, the struggle was with evil. And if you have been hurt very often, you understand what I'm saying, don't you? That recoiling that can be there that pushes you off and you protect yourself from being hurt because hurting hurts and hurt people are naturally disliked by the person that they have hurt. So we shared in spite of opposition, but did they do it in a way, did he, did he come in angry and mad at the world? Self-righteously complain, but notice what he says in verse 7. As he talks about these people, he said, we, did, we, didn't come, we came to you and we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, we cared for you. Because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he continued to love even when he was being persecuted. And the amazing thing about Paul is that he continued to love even when he was the object of what we at once he had been the perpetrator of. And it's a struggle. 
And the only way I think that we continue to love that is we've got to look in the mirror and realize that in all of their ugliness, they are only living out loud what we were and are if it wasn't for Jesus. How could Paul love the people? I mean, they're persecuting, they're following. He has a group of people. He's got like, he's got the, the antithesis of groupies. You know, he's the, he got anti-groupies. You know what I mean? If you're in the church of Christ, anti, we get, but they, he's got groupies that are following around, not because he loves them, but because they want to kill him. Hey, we're going to Paul's concert. What for? We want to kill him. We've got bows and arrows. We've got poise. And so he's got this group following him. And he says that no matter where he goes, he's got people who are pagans that are against him. He's got people from his own family members, the Jewish people that want to, get, want, to, want to persecute him. And even within the church, he is highly criticized. And yet he loves. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he'll say, here's how we related to you. We related to you like a father. There was the protection. We stood up for you like a father would his child. We were like a mother who was nurturing and nursing to you. And we related to you as brothers. We were connected relationally on every aspect of familial love that you could display. He does that to the Thessalonians. And you go, well, yeah, they're Christians. They are Christians, but they are Christians not, be, they are not Christians now because they were unloved and then when be Christians, he loved them, but they are Christians because when they were unchristians, he loved them. You'll never hate anybody into the kingdom. You can't compromise truth. You can't say right is wrong and wrong is right. You can never condone something that God condemns, but you always have to care. And when I handle persecution, I've got to decide that I'm going to care even for my enemy, my persecutor. And then finally, the fifth thing that handling it right means that I continue to share. I continue to care and I continue to share. He says, we were among you, encouraging you, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. You know, some of the people that I have at my church were obnoxious before they were Christians. I was telling him it's a great, I, I love this story. And if I've told it and you've heard it before, just act like you haven't. But I, one of our key leaders at our church, a girl, grew up. And her father started sleeping with her when she was three years old and continued to have sex with her from about the age three, maybe even a little younger. The only reason she knows is she knows when they were, lived in this house and she was either just at the end of two or three. Continued to sleep with her until she was 11 or 12 years old and then discarded her and went on to the younger sister. She walked in with him with his sister, never said anything, has, had lots of guilt with that, and spiraled into the drug abuse and the sexual promiscuity that goes on. And she shows up, she became a Christian on our, our, through our campus ministry, shows up at church, and it happens to be a lesson that I am teaching about a father and what a good father God is. And I'm preaching, and we were in a small building at that time, and all of a sudden from the back, you know, in, in black churches, it's pretty common for people to speak to the preacher, you know, and, to, and, and amen, and just, you know, lots of things. Well, she was very vocal, but when I said about being a good father and, and, and said something, I don't remember the exact context, but all of a sudden from the back, I hear very loud and very clear, you are full of crap, only it wasn't crap. It was the full-fledged S word. You're full, that'll kind of stop you in your sermon, you know what I mean? It really does. And I told them today, it didn't bother me her saying that, but my wife actually amend her. 
that really throw you off. You know, luckily I was, I was quick enough to go, you know, I may be, but what I'm saying is true. She ran away for weeks and people, when they saw her, loved her. They didn't see her often, but it was those words of love and affirmation. I talked with her after and said, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I knew there was anger that's there. She is now one of my best friends and we share a ministry that reaches out to victims of sexual abuse. She and I both understand the struggle that that brings into your life. And I would never know her if some incredible college sisters had not continued to share in the midst of her being crass and unkind and rude. And honestly, our church is made up of people who as unchristians were obnoxious. Now we're obnoxious as Christians, but at least we're saved and we have a mission. You know what I'm saying? It's a cool kind of thing. But you got to keep on sharing. And so he says, listen, we were encouraging you. We we're urging you to live lives worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The fact that they were obnoxious and some of them were the persecutors like him, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a kingdom for them that is designed to be glorious. Some of the people that you give up on when we sing, he's our rescuer. And I read the song about it being good news. It's not just words on a page, it's a reality of some of the people that I love most. They are sharing in a glorious life that comes out of the darkest times. And every one of them are there, are there not because they responded instantly, but because once someone continued to share persistently. And some of the people that you're going to love more than you ever imagined you can love are the ones right now that you can barely stand. And the key is that you continue to share the gospel in your life. And we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accept it not as a human word, but as actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. The word is the power of God and the love that you share is the plow that breaks the hard soil and you have to continue to care and you have to continue to share. Maybe Paul did that so well because he remembered a lesson that God gave him in Acts chapter 18 verse 9 where one day the Bible says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. And anytime, by the way, God tells someone don't be afraid, it's because he knows that they are. Paul has been mistreated. They've threatened his life. There's opposition all around. He says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent for I'm with you and no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. Don't shut up and shut out the people that God wants to be saved simply because persecution has made you afraid. Now, God protects him in this city. If you read the next few verses, you find out that he encounters opposition. But I believe that God, when someone is seeking him, will hedge us with protection so that we can give them. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God for salvation that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The power that is at work in them is not as strong as the power that is working in you as you live consistently and speak lovingly the gospel of Christ.
You see, is, you ever wonder why Jesus did what he did? Why coming to earth and, and why if blood had to be shed, there is no way biblically, some people say, well, I think Jesus could have done it a bit. Here's what I know in scripture, that if this is, that, that if this is not true, then God is a liar. That sin is so powerful that there had to be the shedding of blood of an innocent person in order for sins to be forgiven, for God's just nature to be satisfied. But I've wondered why in the world did he just have Jesus come as a baby, let Herod kill him and have it over with? You ever wonder about that? If the goal was the shedding of the blood, then why not just let Herod kill him as an infant? He comes, he's God in the flesh, he's innocent and he dies. And here's what I believe, can't back it up with a specific scripture and verse, is that I believe that he came to live a life to show us not only that we need to be forgiven, but how to live, and then in his death to show us that when things seem hopeless and you think it's all over, be faithful. And it's not. The resurrection occurs, and after the, book of, the resurrection in the book of Acts, you find persecution, and you find faithfulness, and you find accelerated growth. When they persecuted and they, they, they tried to stomp out the church, it was like a fire that you stomp on dry leaves and it went all over the world. Here's what I want you to know. During the next year, if you're living a godly life on your campus, you will suffer persecution. That persecution will not stop you and cannot stop you if you handle it right, if you handle it right, others will be blessed and you'll be more like Jesus. So there is great news in the middle of this bad news. And I wanna encourage you guys to live with the courage and to grasp your faith in Jesus stronger. And you go out this year and decide that you're going to be a representative for Jesus even if other people don't like it. Because there will see some seeker out there who in the midst of this darkness will see a light and find Jesus. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, it's my prayer that you would help us to understand that we are living in a culture that is rejecting you more and more, not to be afraid, but to be prepared. And Father, I don't think it's coincidental that you brought your church into existence in a cultural sort of setting, a cultural wineskin that was very much like what we have here evil and opposition, and you did it to remind us 2,000 years later that it ain't any big deal that you use persecution to refine us, and you do it to call those who are empty and looking for something different. So, Father, help us know that everyone will suffer persecution, but everyone can be blessed by that if we'll respond in the right way. Make us stronger. Help us to trust you more, Father. Help us to be brave and trustworthy in the face of things that would previously make us be afraid and cower. I beg you to do that, Father, from someone who knows what it is to live as a coward. Give us courage. Give us persistence. Give us faith. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.